Every week, we like to cheer for our children. We want them to know what heaven sounds like. Every day that they wake up, come on, the angels of heaven are cheering them on. Well, we are in the heart of this series called Radical. As you know, we're reading this book, Radical, together by David Platt. If you've not read this or uh, not know about it, you're going to want to pick that up. And even if it's, you know, we only have a couple more life groups and you're maybe visiting the church, you should pick this book up and read it. You should pick it up and read it. We're reading this book together not because we're going to reach the same conclusions that they reached as a church, but we want to ask the same questions. They ended up uh, uh, finding hundreds of thousands of dollars in their in their budget so that they could begin to build churches overseas. They postponed renovation and building plans so that they could begin to, to, to launch some evangelism efforts as a church. Those were conclusions that they reached, but the questions that they ask are the questions that we want to always ask as a church. God, are we being a good steward of our resources? God, is there anything about what we're doing that you want to see us do differently? Part of living a radical life for Christ is willing to ask yourself some radical questions. How do I need to change personally? How do we need to change together as a church? And so as we move forward together as a church family, we might find that we do it differently than they did, but how we're going to do it the same is we're going to ask ourselves hard, honest questions. We want our lives lived out individually and together to reflect and mirror the dream that God has dreamed for each of us. Amen. Come on, so if you've not read that book, you have got to pick that up and check that out. So just to kind of get us thinking along the right direction, you know, each week we've been picking a word that we use to spell radical for us at the City Life Church. And so we've done the radical vow, we've, we've done the radical Bible, come on, we've done the radical work. And so we're going to do a new one tonight and to kind of help us get our brains moving there. Come on, moving is a key word. What's some of the biggest moves that you've ever had to make in your life? And maybe for our giveaway tonight, maybe the person who's made the most recent move that's the farthest. It's the recent move that's the farthest. So Matt moved here from Ohio. How, many, how long ago? June. So anybody more recent farther than that? Anybody? Come on. All right, I see one over there and one over here. Sarah Marie. North Carolina? Okay. Katie? Richmond? Come on. These are all important moves. Uh, we see a couple right here. With their, how about we'll do like a first, second, and third? Can we do that? I have three Starbucks gift cards. How, how far? Florida. How when? August. All right. There's a Starbucks gift card. And you have a little, is this your first? That's your fifth. Well, then we should give them another Starbucks gift card. Praise the Lord. Five. We have three, and I need coffee, so wow, five. Can we just, a moment of silence. Five. What's, what's the age, what's the oldest? 18. 18. Come on, that's fantastic. That's great. Somebody else, far, recent, see a hand over here in the corner? Where? How, yeah, how far and how recent? How far did you move from and how recent was it? Texas? Last July, yeah? All right, come on, let's give them a Starbucks gift card too. Nice, nice. All right, I'm all out of Starbucks gift cards, so now you're just participating for fun. All right? 
So some other moves that you've made just in your life, it's some, when you look through the story of your life, big moves that you've had. I know some of you have made huge moves. Heather, London, Germany, Japan, Hawaii also, last post here, military families, all over, Miss Sonia, Malaysia, Japan, and Hawaii, but not all in the same year, right? Stan. Vietnam and Thailand. Come on, somebody else. Moves. Let's scoot over here. The Abner family. Papua New Guinea, Singapore. You all both grew up in missionary families on the mission field, right? Yeah, come on. Glenn? Wisconsin. A whole nother world in Wisconsin. Chuck? Ohio, Florida, and Texas. All in one year. Wow, wow, that's a lot. Katie. Japan and Hawaii. Sarah Marie. Three moves in one year. Come on. Somebody, one more. Oh, Sherry Martha. Turkey. Yes, in just a few weeks. We're going to be having some turkey. But where's my rim shot? Can we keep the drummer? Can Brad, can you stay in there? Just think, no. That's great, turkey. I want, I want to suggest to you tonight that the biggest moves that you and I will ever make in this life will be moves in here. The biggest moves that God, even if God asks you to move around the world, it will not compare to the moves that he will ask you to make in here. We're calling them mammoth moves of the heart. Mammoth moves of the heart. And I'm trusting tonight for some of you that you're going to begin a journey like that. We're switching it up a little bit tonight. We're not using any media. I'm just going to sit here. I want to share from my heart with you about some things that I feel that God wants to speak to our, our church. And uh, in order to do that, I'm going to, we're, going to have, we're going to unpack a couple of texts together tonight. But I want to start out of Proverbs, beginning in verse 6. I'm starting to have to print these out on bigger paper so I can read them. Lord, help my eyes. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, it says, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination unto him. And it's a poetic language that you find oftentimes in Proverbs to bring emphasis with lists. It'll number the, the first all but one, and then it'll, it'll say like this one. It says, yeah, seven things do I, I hate. It's to bring emphasis to the seven so that when you're reading it, there's a sense of anticipation that's building. Does that make sense? So you're reading it, you're reading the list, you're reading the list, and you're thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, what is the seventh one going to be? So it starts out a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, Number six, a false witness who speaks lies. You, 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 you're building here? You're thinking to yourself, this seventh one must be a doozy, right? It, I mean, shedding innocent blood, false witness, a proud look, and here it comes. Verse 19, and one who sows discord amongst the brethren. A person that creates discord in the midst of a community of people. 2 Timothy 2.24 reads this way, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle, able to teach, and patient. Which means that, that you should not be a quarrelsome person. A quarrelsome person is someone who is always at odds with other people. Come on, we don't know anybody like that. Titus 3.10, Reject a divisive person after the first or second admonition. So you warn them once, 
warn him a second time. Come on. And then Paul says to Titus, this young minister, after you've warned him a couple of times, do not have anything to do with them. There is little else in the Bible. There is little else in the Bible that God speaks to with such harshness as he does to people that sow discord and disunity. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 15. And as you're turning there, I want to read some quotes from you out of this book, Oneness Embraced. A friend of mine gave this book to me recently by Tony Evans. If you're familiar with him and his ministry, Tony Evans, it's called Oneness Embraced Through the Eyes of Tony Evans. Listen to this quote. It says, our racial divide is a disease. Over-the-counter human remedies won't fix it. They merely mask the symptoms for a season. What we need is a prescription from the creator to destroy this cancer before it destroys us. It's my contention, he writes, that if the church can never get this issue of oneness right, then how can we help America to finally become one nation unto God that we declare ourselves to be? When we get it right in the church, listen to this, when we get it right in the church house, that's when we can spread it to the White House and beyond. It's good, isn't it? Listen to this, this is chapter 1. He says, until we can embrace how we were born and raised, we will never be able to manifest the values of God in history so that people can understand and fully see that God is a God of multicoloredness. Come on, isn't that a good line? That God is a God. If you see God in any particular color, then you do not see him as he is. He is a God of multicoloredness. Listen to this quote. This is from Cal Thomas. I want to hit two things tonight that I believe that create division in the church today. But it's not going to be divisive here. Come on at the City Life Church. This is by Cal Thomas. He's got a book called Blinded by Might. It's a great book, a favorite of mine that he wrote. This is a quote from it. It says, whenever the church cozies up to political power, it loses sight of its all-important mission to change the world from the inside out. In blurring the lines between politics and Christianity, the religious right has traded the only power that can truly change America, the gospel's power to transform a heart. Come on. This week in David Platt's book, we read the chapter called A Radical Team. So we're spelling radical tonight, T-E-A-M. And the tagline for this chapter was the genius of wrong Building the church depends on using all the wrong people. And the reason why we often view them as wrong often is because of the color of their skin or because of their political affiliation. Those aren't David Platt's words. Those are mine. So let me share this thought with you. And then we're going to launch into our opening text tonight. It says, racial and political prejudice are strongholds of division and discord in the church today that must be dislodged. And our contribution to this vital effort as a church is to ensure that they will never have a place at the City Life Church. If we want to see changed, change, then be changed. If we want to see change, then be changed. If we want to see change in our world, then it starts right here. If we want to see change out there, then we've got to be willing to be changed in the ways that we need to be changed so that we can be a change agent in the world that we live in and we want our church to be a change agent when it comes to dealing with the divisiveness of race and politics in the church. So let's talk about race first. You ready? 
Come on, straight talk tonight from the pulpit. Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28. This is one of the portions of Scripture that challenges us. It confronts us. It's one of the texts in Scripture that I like to think of. It grabs us by our theological collar and shakes us around a little bit and causes us to ask the question, God, are you sure you meant this to be in here? We read some stories like this where Jesus treats people in a certain way that catches us off guard and it makes us think that maybe the people that were editing the Bible, we were talking about that last week, they might have made a mistake. We read stories like this encounter that we're getting ready to read and it makes us think that like Jesus forgot the camera was rolling. Right? You ever been watching the news and all of a sudden a a political person forgets their mic is still on? Yeah? Then they say a few words, maybe that they didn't intend for the world to hear. And then you hear him say, wait, is this still on? Is this still on, right? You see somebody out in public and they're, they're caught. It's happened in the news just recently. People are, are, are viewed doing something that they think nobody else is watching. We are going to read this story. I'm telling you, there are some aspects of the story. It causes us to ask the question, did Jesus really know that this was going to be recorded for us? Beginning in verse 21, it says, When Jesus left there, he withdrew to the area of Tyre and Sidon. And just then a Canaanite woman from that region came and kept crying out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly tormented by a demon. So we know that her situation is urgent. It's urgent. Yet he did not say a word to her. So his disciples approached him and urged him, Send her away because she cries out after us. You would have thought the disciples would have said, hey, there's somebody here. Maybe he's not hearing her. You with me? But they say, hey, come on, Jesus. She's bothersome to us. Send her away. He replied, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He answered, it isn't right to take children's bread and throw it to their dogs. Really? Really? This is the Jesus, right, that we just sang to. All to him I owe, right? You might read that text and say, well, he didn't really call her a dog. He's, you know, well, let somebody like that talk to you in a similar way and you tell me what it feels like, right? There's no question there's an insult being levied. Yes, Lord, she said, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus replied to her, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment, her daughter was cured. What on earth is that story? Has anybody ever read that story before and thought to yourself, this is imposter Jesus, right? Give me back my real Jesus because this certainly can't be him. Why is that there. Well, Matthew gives us the detail that she's a Canaanite woman, which tells us that she's a descendant of the people that the Israelites conquered to take possession of the promised land. But if you turn to the Gospel of Mark in the seventh chapter, he records for us the same story, and he gives us a little bit more of a detail. He tells us that she is Syrophoenician, that she's from this region of Tyre and Sidon. And that's an important detail because if the idea that she was a Canaanite was not already an insight into the racial tension that her people had with the Israelites, 
Israelites. The fact that she was a Syrophoenician from the area of Tyre and Sidon drills it down even farther because that was the ethnicity of Jezebel. Even if you're not even familiar with the Bible, right, you're familiar with the term Jezebel. Jezebel is never used in a positive light in reference to somebody. Why is that? Because she's one of the most evil people that the Bible records for us in history. And this woman is from the people of Jezebel's family. So the gospel writers are trying to help us to understand that she's a person of an ethnicity that the Jewish people are absolutely at odds with. The information that's given to us here in this story, Jesus is sharing with us because he's about ready to deal with the challenge of the divisiveness, divisiveness of racism. Listen to this. In Mark, Matthew 23, it says that he was silent to her. So here comes this woman. He already knows that there's a racial divide. He already knows that the disciples are looking at her and she's looking at them. There's racial tension here in this story. And it says that he ignores her. Now, why would he do that? Now, it's another sermon for another time for all of that. Part of that is because I think that he was helping her to learn how to discover a place of faith in her prayer. Sometimes it feels as though God's not answering us, but it's not because God's ignoring us. It's because he's delaying us because he wants our heart to hope deeper because as our heart hopes deeper, faith is born. And then the faith, come on, is the gateway oftentimes to releasing things into our life that we're desperate to have. So sometimes God helps us by not answering us. You with me? He's helping this woman through ignoring her to draw her into a deeper place of faith. But I believe that he's ignoring her also because he is trying to see what the disciples are going to do. He's creating a moment of pause because he's trying to say to the disciples, what is going to be your reaction? And they did not fail him, right? As always, they took a wrong turn. The disciples were supposed to say, Jesus, come on, here is this woman. Not only is her daughter suffering from demonic possession, but you and I both know that not only is she a Canaanite, but she's Syrophoenician, that she has suffered injustice because of her ethnicity. Surely we are not going to be ones that add to that. Is that what they said? They said, come on, will you tell this woman to shut up already? Jesus puts us in situations and scenarios throughout our life because he wants to expose the prejudice and the bigotry that's in our hearts. He does not want us to live our lives ignorant of the prejudice that's in there, and we all have it. And so he puts us in scenarios to bring it to the surface so that he can begin to speak to us about how it needs to change. Verse 28. Verse 28, you got to love how this story ends. Then Jesus replied to her, woman, your faith is great. Let it be done for you as you want. And from that moment forward, her daughter was cured. There is a reason why Jesus moved with miraculous power. 
Certainly because he had compassion on this young girl. Certainly because he had compassion on this woman. But I believe also to teach the church an important lesson. That if we want to see the power of God at work in our church, then we cannot let our hearts be swept away by racial prejudice. Jesus is drawing a connecting line, a causal relationship, if you will, between a lack of power in the church and and racial divisiveness. I believe that Jesus in this story is saying to the world, if you want to see God's power move in measures that are greater than what it is now, then deal with the racial divide from which you suffer that he was creating a scenario for those disciples to step into because he's about ready to hand them the responsibility for the fulfillment of his vision for the world. The chronological context of the Bible is deeply instructive. Here we are in Matthew 15. In Matthew 16, we get to the place where Jesus unveils his plan for the world that he's going to launch the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones. He's going to leave. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And these people, especially these 12, the apostles that he has raised up, that they are his successors. So right before, just before he passes them the baton, he promotes them to the heirs of carrying out his master plan for the launch and the creation of the church in the world. What does he say to them? Deal with the prejudice that is in your heart because if you don't, then my church will become something that I never intended it to be. You cannot see this woman the way the world sees her. You cannot see this woman the way your parents taught you to see her. You cannot respond to her in the way that the natural inclination of your heart wants to respond to her because of the cancer of the prejudice that is in your life. He's saying to these disciples, deal with these feelings of racial divisiveness because if you don't, it will infect my church and I will not have it. And then at the end, come on, a miracle happens. It's a stamp that he puts on his teachings so often so that people will surrender to the reality that he is who he says he is. He is who he says he is. All right, so pull this website up for me. Come on, straight talk tonight from the City Life Church. I don't want, I don't want to go to a church that avoids the tough questions. You with me? So this is a test I'm going to ask each of you to take sometime this week. But you can, you can, you can, you can pretend with it even now, Right? Your, your left and your right index finger, you, you get them loose, right? So you can pretend that your left index finger is on the E key of a, of a keyboard, and you can pretend your right index finger is on the I. You getting ready? Come on, let me see you. You're not participating with me. Come on. All right. All right, so we're going to do the race implicit association test. We're just going to do a little bit of it, but there's all kinds that are on here. Implicit means that there, it means assumption. Implicit means that there are assumptions that are at work in your life that you don't even realize that are there. So implicit association test, it measures associations that you have or preferences that you have, again, that maybe you didn't even know. So we're going to cruise past these things. He's going to find it. Race implicit association test. Click here to begin. You want that? Yeah, then continue. Keep going. Okay. We're not going to fill this part out. Okay. I'm ready to begin. All right, stop here. So it's going to start, but you can pretend, all right? 
There's going to be, it's going to start out, it's going to say European-American on the left, it's going to say African-American on the right, and then there are going to be pictures that pop up onto the, the screen of people of that ethnicity. And you're going to click with your left index finger when you see a picture pop up that's European-American, and you're going to click with your right index finger when you see a picture pop up with African-American. All right, go ahead, Court. Roll it. All right, so you're clicking. You with me? Clicking, clicking. You're doing it? You're practicing it? Pretend like you're on a keyboard. Come on, selecting it as if what you're selecting it goes. We're going to do this. Keep going. We're almost there. All right. We're setting you up, all right, for how the test works. So the next one is you're going to take words, words that have a connotation of good and words that have a connotation of bad. All right, let's do that one. Same thing. Do it in your seat. So agony, bad, good, bad, good, bad, good, bad, bad, good. You tracking with me? You're rolling now, right? You're flying. You're like, this is the easiest test I've ever taken, Pastor Fred. All right, here we go. We're not going to do all of this. We're just going to do it a couple of times. So this is where the test starts to reveal your heart. It forces you to associate pictures of African-American people with the concept of good and people of European descent with bad and vice versa. We're not going to actually do this part, but I want, you, I want you to do this test. You download the notes from this sermon on our website. The link is on there. And what it does, it will measure your hesitation to associate black with bad or good and white with bad or good. And, and you will be shocked, for some of you, what your score comes out as. You tracking with me? Because those of us who have maybe assumptions at work in our lives that we did not realize that were there, that we have a hard time associating good with people of an ethnicity that's different for us. And it gives you a score. It gives you a rating. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are a racist. For some of you, that might be something you need to be confronted with. But for many of you, it doesn't necessarily mean you're a racist. It just lets you know that you have biases in your heart. You might not even know how they got there, but Jesus wants you to get rid of them. A mammoth move of the heart. We have got to be aware of the biases that are at work in our life because the church is supposed to be a place that is colored blind. And before Jesus launched his church, he put his disciples squarely in the midst of a situation. Come on, he set them up for failure. Come on, sometimes God sets us up for failure to deal with our sin. And he puts them in that situation to show to them the biases that were in their heart so that they could look to him to be their healer just as the Syrophoenician woman was looking to him to be the healer of his daughter. If he can heal his daughter, this woman's daughter, then the disciples look at him and say, then surely he can heal my heart of the racial divisiveness that is there. All right, turn your Bibles to Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Listen to this. Susan Cephas, that's another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, for he used, he used to 
eat with the Gentiles before certain men came from, from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. That's the people of Jewish descent. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Peter in front of everyone, if you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? If you look at the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles that's so often written about in the New Testament is just a doctrinal divide. You miss one of the great teachings that the Bible gives to us. It's in there to remind us that there can be racial tension in the church. And the divide between the Jews and the Gentiles in the New Testament time was the church's first battle against racism in the church. Even at its inception, it had to fight the divisiveness of race in Christ's church, and we're still fighting it today. It's different ethnicities, it's different people groups, but it's the same depraved human condition that we all suffer from, which is self-righteousness. And oftentimes that self-righteousness does, does, has everything to do with the color of our skin, that we view ourselves as better than other people. And it's important that we are willing to take a look into our heart and say, is that me. And if it is, that we begin to change. We begin to trust that Christ can be our healer. All right, so let me give you some next steps. Then I want to talk about political divisiveness. Okay, we're good. The mentioning of color. So this is a measure for you. And for you, for some of you, things that you need to stop doing. And people that you're around, when they do it, that you need to bring it up, right? So my friend, you know, David God, when he's getting ready to get married to Hannah, he's black. And so he's a... Uh, He's a great guy. He's a worship leader. And uh, did I mention that he's black? And so, right? You've heard people do this, right? All the time. Some of you tonight, you would have left, and this is what you would have said. Man, that drummer was awesome talking to your friends. I go to the City Life Church now. they got this drummer. He's black. And he, I mean, he is such a great drummer, right? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of you did that just this week. You came in from Walmart. You were telling a story to somebody about so I was in the line at the Walmart. You would not believe the sale that I went. So I'm checking out, and the person that was checking me out, you know, she was a Mexican. And so, right, why, why, who here has ever said? So I was at Burger King the other day. I love their onion rings. And the person at the checkout window, she's white. And who says that, right? We, we don't say that. We always have this inclination to mention the color of the person's skin when it's not even germane to the story you got to stop doing that. You have to stop doing that. And when people do that around you, I'm not, don't be obnoxious, right? You can't be the self-right. You can't now become right, the race police in the world. But you do have to follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And when he nudges your heart, you should say to that person, why is it that you feel a need to mention the color of their skin? Mention the sermon. Mention that you're on a journey. Hey, I know that I've got some issues in my own heart that I'm dealing with. And so I'm bringing that up to you, not to give you a hard time, but I want to be in a world where we just stop seeing the color of people. Begin to share your heart, some of your own struggles. People use the phrase, well, that's just how I was brought up. Okay, well, that helps us to understand how we got here, but that shouldn't be what tells us where we're going to be going in the future. There is a different way for us to live, and we have got to live that way in the church. 
cross-cultural friendships. You can download the sermon. The notes are all in here. If you do not have any friends that look different from you, go find some. Go find some. Somebody at your office that you've known for a long time, I am telling you, they are open to you on Monday, coming up to them and say, my pastor preached a sermon and I know that I have a problem. Would you be willing to go to lunch with me? This, to, would you be willing to go to lunch with me this week? I, I just want to pick your brain. I'm telling you, they will smile from ear to ear. If it's the right person, right? You know who to ask. You know who to ask. But there are people in your life that have been waiting to help you. And they will help you if you ask. Cross-cultural friendships. Boycott racially motivated humor. If you are standing in a group of people and the joke starts out, there was a white person and a black person they went to, you should say, hey, you know what? I'm not sure I really want to hear that. You have got to be a voice in the world that says, you know what? I'm not going to find humor in things that contribute to the divisiveness of this world based on the color of people's skin. Do not do it. Turn the channel on the radio. Flip to another TV show. If they begin to do not let that be something that's in your home. I'm telling you, you think that it's innocent. Your kids are going to grow up with it, and it's going to affect who they are. Speak out whenever possible. We already did that one. In this last one, teach our children that race doesn't matter. Sometimes it's having follow-up conversations after you leave family time with grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. You've got a grandparent or aunt or an uncle or somebody. It might be one of your parents. It might be a sibling. They're always talking about the people of colors of skin. Or maybe it is out-and-out out racist. Talk to your children about what they heard. They did hear it. I don't care how old they are. They knew that something wasn't right about it, and they're waiting for you to speak up and give them some boundaries. Give them those boundaries. Say, hey, we're going to love Grandma. We don't love her any less, but I just I want you to know, honey, that we don't talk like that in our home because God doesn't see people different or love people different because of the color of their skin, and God wants to change Grandma's heart. Come on, and we're going to help her do that. You with me? So how cool would it be that when you're a grandchild, the next time they're in a conversation with Grandma, Grandpa, that they're the ones that ask them that question. You want to see somebody's heart begin to change, the voice of a child. We want to be colorblind at the City Life Church. We're going to be colorblind here, and we're going to help create a colorblind world. Amen? All right. Come on, you can clap for that. What kind of clap was that? All right, we got a few minutes left. I'm, we're not going to do all of this one, but I want to touch on it. If you, think, if you think racial divisiveness is a problem in the church, come on. Political divisiveness is just as bad, and in some situations it's even worse. I'm not going to read through it. Again, you can download this off the Internet, but if you turn to Matthew 16, do you think for one minute that it is an accident that before Jesus launches the church, that the two things that he dials in before his big announcement is racial divide and political divide. You think that's an accident? Do you think that God in heaven after the Bible was put together was like, wow, that's pretty cool. Come on, with great intentionality, he is saying to us, do not let these things be a part of my church. If you want to create a church, then you go create something of yourself. But if it's going to be my church, if you're going to put my name on it, if you're going to use the name of my son, racial divisiveness and political divisiveness cannot be a part of it. Matthew 16, he talks a lot about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 
And again, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they differed not just because there were doctrinal differences. They were of two different political groups. They were a part of what's called the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body. They were a religious state, so there was no separation between religious and civil. It was all mixed in together. I'm not saying that's the way to do it. I'm just saying that was the condition of their world that they grew up in. So you can think of the Sanhedrin as a hybrid between the Congress and the courts and the church. It was all lumped into there together because all the laws that governed them both civilly and religiously was born out of the Mosaic Law. And so the Sanhedrin were the religious ruling civic leaders. They made the laws for the Jewish people. And there were two main groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They were religious entities, but they were every bit a part of being political entities. And here in this text, Jesus tells the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Come on, he's, it's a word that means yeast because yeast is an important ingredient because whatever you put it in, it changes it. And Jesus is most certainly saying, be careful of what you Give your heart to by way of truth, because it's like yeast. It will change you, either for the good or for the bad. But what you assign your heart to as being true, it will change you. It's like a yeast. It's leaven. But I believe that Jesus was also saying in that moment, do not let the leaven of politics be in my house. He wasn't just talking about misreligious teaching that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had. He was talking about the whole idea of political entities being in a place where they drive the agenda for the church. Jesus was saying, do not let this happen. Because then the true mission of the church, which is to bring the gospel of the world, will get displaced by ideas that sound religious but are actually politically motivated. Let me read this statement to you. You can be a Republican and be a Christian. You can be a Democrat and be a Christian. You can be a Libertarian and be a Christian. And if you're having a hard time believing that, then you are the person in the story that's frustrating Jesus. As you read this story, you will find that Jesus, he gets a little irritated with the disciples. We do not want to be the source of irritation in Jesus because we are continually bringing a political agenda to the house of God. It doesn't mean that you can't be passionate about politics. It doesn't mean that you can't find things in certain political parties that, are, that, that, that excite your heart because it's something that's also a part of you because of your Christian values. That's okay. But do not, do not confuse the two. Political conservatism is not Christianity. They are not the same. You can take any political party and find some components of their agenda that line up with things that are important to Jesus. But the most important thing to Jesus is the gospel. It's the good news that he saves. And that has to be the place where the church camps and says, this is why we are here. This is the message that we are supposed to bring. And so if you're passionate about politics, come on, it might even be that that's a place of ministry that God has put you on this earth to be salt and light. But but the church cannot become, come on, the church cannot become your platform for your political ideals. Because God loves every person of every political party just the same, especially those who have a passion, fervor, and love for Jesus Christ. All right, so let me read you some verses. Come on, it's right here in the Bible. 
whether you like it or not. It's right here. Romans 13, 1 through 6. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. Doesn't say of the one that's of your political affiliation. It just says to the one that's in, in the house. For all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. And it goes on, and it talks about the role of government. And listen to what it says in verse 5. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes, too, for the same reasons. And it goes on again to talk about the importance of the role of the government in the world. Titus 3, 1 through 2. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show humility to everyone. It doesn't mean that you can't speak out against things that, that you think are wrong. It doesn't mean that you can't have an opinion. It doesn't mean that you can't choose a side. But there's a way to do that that is still Christ-honoring and a way that's respectful to people that you disagree with. 1 Peter 2.17, respect everyone. Republican, Democrat. Libertarian, independent, and the list goes on. Respect everyone, Peter writes, and love your Christian brothers and sisters. Fear God and respect the king. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. It's my last one. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Oh, come on. All right, let me give you a few next steps. We're in the home stretch. Pray for political leaders regardless of their party affiliation. Pray for political leaders regardless of their party affiliation. I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, all the emotional energy that sometimes you give yourself to ranting and raving of what's happening in the political world if you had just given half of that to prayer for those same situations, you would have made such a bigger difference. I'm not saying don't stand up and speak. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't exercise your right for free speech. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't be fervent and passionate about what you believe. I'm just saying give it equal time. Give it equal time. If you're going to spend an hour a day posting on Facebook about your frustration, spend an hour a day. Spend an hour a day in prayer for those same people for those same situations. Because you have the ability to make a difference that nobody else can make who doesn't know Jesus as Lord. You have an audience with the creator of the universe. How much more do you think your prayer would make a difference in those same situations? Come on, here's another one. Listen to this. Remember a person's lack of respectability does not give me permission to be disrespectful. A person's lack of respectability does not give me permission to be disrespectful. So people that are authority over me who hold an office, a bona fide elected office, even if, even if they do nothing respectable about their lives, that does not give me permission to treat them with disrespect. God calls us to a higher standard as Christ followers. Doesn't mean that we can't speak out doesn't mean that we can't say that that's wrong. It doesn't mean that we can't say that's not right. It doesn't mean that sometimes we can't protest in certain ways. 
But the question is, are, is it done with humility? And is it done in a way that respects their office? Minimize your exposure to intentionally provocative political commentary. Minimize your, if, if you're listening to radio shows and television shows, I don't care what party you're from, if after you're reading it, you're all amped up, then you need to minimize how much time you give yourself to that. There are a lot of those shows out there, I'm telling you, they don't care about you, they don't care about what you think, they just care about your money, and they care about their ratings. And it's the Jerry Springer of politics. Controversy sells. Be careful that you do not give yourself an inordinate amount of time to places where you know, as you begin to listen to it, they're being controversial for controversy's sake because they're just trying to stir the pot. As Christians, we're not called to be pot stirrers. We're called to be reconcilers as ambassadors for Christ. All right, this is my last one. Read and listen to thoughtful, respectful people who differ from you politically. One of the things that I do as a, as a pastor, as a minister, is I make sure that I'm continually reading people who believe things theologically different from myself. I want to make sure that I'm checking my blind spots. I want to make sure that I'm understanding what other people believe. One of the reasons why is because I want to know how is it that they could be so impassioned and be so convicted about what they believe and yet it's so different from mine. You can walk away from that with a sense of arrogance or you can walk away from that and say, I'm curious to why they're so, imp they believe with the same passion that I believe about mine in theological streams. I want to learn about why they believe what they believe. It should be the same thing in the political arena. You should care about what other people believe, especially when it's something that's a passion of their heart. There should be a curiosity and interest in you. And I'm telling you, one of the reasons why it needs to be is because in this room, I'm telling you, there are people in this room that believe radically different things about politics than each of us. And there should be something inside of us that says, you know what, I want, I want to know why they believe that. So give yourself to, I'm not talking about switching from one controversy to the next. People that are respectful, people that differ from you, take the time to listen to what they might have to say, and you might learn something about how you can connect with other people in this room who believe different from you. Come on, stand with me as we pray. Psalm 27, 13. It's a new verse that I'm really praying into for our church. It says, I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would have lost heart. If I did not believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, it's part of the message of our church that we believe that you do not have to experience heaven for the first time once you breathe your last, that he wants you to experience his goodness in the land of the living. And outside of these walls, there is a community that needs to experience the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And when they come in here, if they look different than us, they shouldn't feel conspicuous. If they believe different things politically than maybe some of us believe, they shouldn't feel conspicuous. We do not want to be the impediment of the goodness of God and the land of the living for the people in our community. So, Father, we say to you, all the wrong people, God, to build your kingdom. And for people that are here tonight that they have viewed people of a different skin color as being wrong because of their skin, oh, God, convict our hearts tonight and be our healer. 
if we have looked with a sense of judgmentalness and a sense of arrogance at other people because they believe things politically from us, oh God, forgive us tonight. Jesus, be our healer. That we want to step into the ministry of reconciliation that you have called your church and your house to be. And we know that's here at the City Life Church. We know, God, if we are going to see change, that we've got to be changed. And we say, change us tonight. That this church, your church, will be a place that is colored blind. That this church, your church, is going to be a place where people of differing political parties and views can come together and be a part of the same family because we believe in you. And that will transcend all things for us for all times. In Jesus' name, come on. And everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week.